Well, how many of you are familiar with uh, Richard Wormbrand? Okay, quite a few of you. I'm, I'm encouraged by that. There's a, a book that he wrote. I want to quote from that extensively during my message today. Richard Wormbrand was a pastor in Romania in the 1940s. He was jailed as his role of being a pastor in the underground Romanian church. While in prison, he uh, faced periodic periods of physical torture. He experienced constant suffering from hunger and cold. He was brainwashed and faced untold mental cruelty. He spent months in solitary confinement. And after 14 years in prison, he was finally ransomed from uh, two Christian organizations, um, one in Oslo, and I'm not sure where the other one was from Norway and the others. But with his freedom then, at one point he said something to the effect of, um, boy, I just want to live a life of uh, solitary ease. But just his conscience smote him too much. And so what he did is he trumpeted and led the cause of uh, being the voice of those who are being martyred for Christ. So he started the missions organization Voice of the Martyrs. He led it until his death a few years ago. And um, he really trumpeted the cause to let people know of how great is the sufferings of Christians across the world. And I want to begin this morning by, by reading a, a portion of this book, Tortured for Christ. It's a rather long introduction, but I give you a... a uh, a good picture of who Richard Wormbrand was. He wrote this book. In fact, he was released from prison in 1965. The copyright on this book is 1967. It was pretty quick after he was released from prison that he, he wrote this. It's a longer quote, but it will help set our text this morning. He says, I worked in both an official and underground manner until January 29, 1948. On that beautiful Sunday, on my way to church, I was kidnapped from the street by secret police. Many at that time were kidnapped like this. A van of secret police stopped in front of me. Four men jumped out and pushed me into the vehicle. I was taken to a prison where I was kept secretly for over eight years. During that time, no one knew whether I was alive or dead. My wife was visited by the secret police who posed as released fellow prisoners. They told her that they had attended my burial. And she was heartbroken. Thousands of believers from churches of all denominations were sent to prison at that time. Not only were clergymen put in jail, but also simple peasants, young boys and girls who witnessed for their faith. The prisons were full in in Romania as in all communist countries. To be in prison means to be tortured. The tortures were sometimes horrible. I prefer not to speak too much about these though through which I have passed. It is too painful, and when I do, I cannot sleep. And he speaks of one of the tortures. He says, A pastor by the name of Florescu was tortured with red-hot iron pokers and with knives. He was beaten very badly, and then starving rats were driven into his cell through a large pipe. He could not sleep because he had to defend himself all the time. If he rested a moment, the rats would attack him. He was forced to stand for two weeks, day and night. The communists wished to compel him to betray his brethren, but he resisted steadfastly. Eventually, they brought his 14-year-old son to the prison and began to whip the boy in front of his father, saying that they would continue to beat him until the pastor said what they wished him to say. 
The poor man was half mad. He bored as long as he could, and then he cried out to his son, Alexander, I must say what they want. I can't bear your beating anymore. And the son answered this way, Oh, for God to give teenagers like this at Rock Valley Bible Church. How many of you teenagers here? You're being whipped in front of your dad. Your dad says, I'll say whatever, whatever they want to say, and so the whipping will stop. And here's what you say. Father, don't do me the injustice of having a traitor as a parent. Withstand. If they kill me, I will die with the words, Jesus and my fatherland. The communists were enraged at those words and fell upon the child and beat him to death with blood spattered over the walls of the cell. He died praising God. Oh, for God to give teenagers like that to Rock Valley Bible Church willing to die rather than seeing their parents denounce Christ. I know I want my kids to be like that. Urging me on in intense danger and intense trouble, saying, Dad, don't deny Christ. I'll die before I want you to be a traitor. Our dear brother Floresca was never the same after seeing this. I can understand that. And then Wormbrand talks about his own sufferings. He says, handcuffs with sharp nails on the insides were placed on our wrists. If we were totally still, they didn't cut us. But in the bitterly cold cells when we shook with cold, our wrists would be torn by the nails. Christians were hung upside down on ropes and beaten so severely their bodies swung back and forth under the blows like a punching bag. Christians were also placed in an icebox refrigerator cells which were so cold that frost and ice covered the inside. I was thrown into one while I had very little clothing on. Prison doctors would watch through an opening until they saw symptoms of freezing to death. Then they'd give a signal to the guards who'd rush in and take us out and make us warm. When we were finally warmed, we would immediately be put back in the icebox cells to freeze. Thawing out and then freezing to within minutes of death and then being thawed out over and over and over again. Even today, there are times when I can't bear to open a refrigerator because remembering what that meant to him. We Christians were sometimes forced to stand in wooden boxes only slightly larger than we were. This left no room to move. Dozens of sharp nails were driven into every side of the box with the razor-sharp points sticking through the wood. While we stood perfectly still, it was all right, but we were forced to stand in those boxes for endless hours. We became fatigued and swayed with tiredness. The nails would pierce our bodies. If we moved or twitched a muscle, there were horrible nails. What the communists have done to Christians surpasses any possibility of human understanding. All the biblical descriptions of hell and the pains of Dante's Inferno are nothing in comparison with the tortures in communist prisons. If I were to continue to tell of all the horrors of communist tortures and all the self-sacrifice of Christians, I would never finish. Not only were the tortures known, but the heroic deeds were known also. Tortured for Christ. This whole book is filled with stuff like that. It's unbelievable what he went through. It really is very sobering for us here this morning and provides a good introduction to our topic this morning, which is suffering for Christ. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. It is interesting as I read those, those sufferings, yet many suffered like that in Romania, but not all in Romania suffered like that. 
This wasn't regular for the Romanians, though many face that. In fact, it's also interesting. I was thinking, in the Bible, I don't know of anybody in the Bible who suffered as much as Richard Rembrandt suffered. And then we think about us in the United States. None of us have come even close to what Richard Wormbrand faced. I've never heard of anybody being kidnapped by police on his way to church. I've never heard of anybody thrown into a secret prison, kept away from their family for eight years. He didn't know if he was alive or dead. As I read through that book, it was the rumors. Oh, Wormbrand is alive. He's alive. He's alive after eight years. Because they didn't know. They assumed he was dead. I don't know of anybody who has been tortured physically for Christ. And yet, these people in Romania were tortured for the very things that we do, like attending a Sunday morning service like you're attending here this morning, like telling others about Jesus, like wearing Christian t-shirts, or like owning and reading a Bible. And yet, that's not to say that we are without suffering. I think our suffering is a little bit different. Most often, it comes in the form of ridicule or verbal abuse. I want to read for you, though, a statement that Richard Wormbrand said about suffering in the West. He was, he was redeemed, ransomed out of Romania, comes to the West, comes to the United States, you know, seeking to raise money to help um, solve the problem of the persecuted church. I suffer more in the West than I did in communist lands. How is Richard Wormbrand suffering in the West? Think about it. It says, my suffering consists, first of all, in the longing after the unspeakable beauties of the underground church. The underground church is indeed a poor and suffering church, but it has few lukewarm members. Whoever has known the spiritual beauty of the underground church cannot be satisfied anymore with the emptiness of some western churches. Probably Rock Valley Bible Church included. Lukewarm Christians not willing to suffer and die for Christ. That causes Richard Wormbrand, he says, more suffering than being in the underground church being persecuted. Might tell you a little bit something about the sustaining grace for those who are suffering for Christ. Well, let me read our text this morning. 1 Peter chapter 4, 14 through 19. By God's grace, I might get through it all today. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the Gospel of God. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. Now, one of the things as you read this text, listen to it, begin to dig into it a little bit, you might notice is the number of conditional statements here in this text. The little word if is used four different times here in these six verses, six verses, seven verses. 
comes up time and time and time again. Look at verse 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ. Verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian. Verse 17. If judgment begins with the household of God, it is time for judgment to begin. And if it begins with us first is the implication. Verse 18. If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. In every single one of these instances, the if has the exact same identical idea. If says, if you're suffering for Christ. Verse 14 says it most clearly. If you're reviled for the name of Christ. That is, you take the name of Christ upon yourself and you're reviled. The next if comes in verse 15. If anyone suffers as a Christian, right? The idea is that someone is suffering for Christ, not suffering as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. And down in verse 17, the same. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God with the church. And if it begins with the church, those professing Christ are identifying with Him. Last if is verse 18. If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. There's the same idea. Righteous. You're, you're holy. You're seeking to pursue God's righteousness. It's your righteousness because of that that you're experiencing difficulty in your life. And the other two verses here in this passage that doesn't contain the word if has the same implication if you're suffering for your faith in Christ. Like verse 15, make sure you don't suffer as a murderer, thief, or evildoer, or troublesome meddler. Don't suffer like that, but make sure that if you're suffering, it's being done as a Christian. And also then verse 19 contains a similar thought, those who suffer according to the will of God. You've submitted yourself to the will of God and walking holy before Him and your suffering is coming as a result of that. And so my message this morning is appropriately entitled, If You Suffer for Christ. This entire text talks about the implication of suffering for Christ. Peter, in his counsel, will comfort people. He'll give them advice of how it is they ought to act. He'll give them insight into what they ought to think. As you just think about your life also, how much do you suffer for Christ? Maybe we've caught the disease of the lukewarm Western church. Perhaps we need to catch the disease of the underground church. They'll be bold that we'll suffer for Christ. And I would say as I go through this, that if your suffering is other ways, you will even find comfort, I think, in some of the advice that Peter gives, even though the main application here is suffering for Christ. It does apply to all different types of suffering as well. Well, let's look first. If you suffer for Christ, verse 14 says, you're blessed. I picked that point off here, right? Verse 14. If you revile for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Peter here puts forth a scenario. Those are speaking badly of you because of your faith in Christ. You are insulted, as the NIV ESV says. Or you're reproached, as the New King James says. You are blamed and disgraced because you're a follower of Christ. Peter here isn't focusing upon the physical sufferings as much as he's focusing upon verbal sufferings that come upon your life because you've attached yourself to Jesus. And I just say this, verbal sufferings are no less painful than physical sufferings. Uh, You kids know sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will what? Never hurt me. Is that true? It's not true. Words hurt deeply. And part of following Christ means that you will be on the receiving end of receiving hurtful words. Jesus said this 
Woe to you when all men speak well of you. In other words, it's a curse to you if everybody is saying nothing but good to you. If people aren't saying good things to you, God will inflict you with a curse. Woe to you. You're going to face God's woe. Following Christ means that you will receive what He received. He received reproaches and insults and slanders with great regularity. And we will receive this as well. If we don't receive this, woe to us. In your life, it might come from various different sources. It might come from neighbors. It might come from family members. It might come from teachers or government officials or from people you meet on the street. But Peter's just talking here in general about those who speak poorly of you because of your association with the name of Christ. When you go through the early church, you can see this happening often. Through the book of Acts especially. Peter and John, scolded by the religious leaders. Stephen was maligned. Paul was attacked. All verbally. And sometimes this verbal attack is true and sometimes it, the truth is distorted a little bit so as to make the accusation worse. This is the case against Stephen. The accusation brought Stephen was that he spoke blasphemous words against Moses and against God. He's a blasphemous man. By the businessman in Philippi, Paul was accused of throwing our city into confusion being Jews and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or observe being Romans. Right? This guy's coming in telling us what to do and he's ruining our business. Or in Thessalonica, the Jews are becoming jealous. They incited some wicked men to form a mob. So they're in uproar. They're saying, these people who have upset the world have come here and they're going to upset us also. Just slandering them, verbally abusing them. In Ephesus, the idol makers accused Paul of destroying their prosperity by preaching Jesus. They're being slandered. And not only was Paul reviled from pagan Gentiles, he was also reviled from the Jews too. The rumor going around Jerusalem was he was teaching all Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children to walk according to the customs of the day. That's partially true and partially not true. But such language was used to create hostility against Paul. Paul was called a real pest in Acts 24, verse 5. Some of you brothers and sisters may be called pests. Well, Paul was called a pest. Let's get him out of here. He's that annoying fly. Let's just smash him. He was accused of being out of his mind. In the book of Acts, we see the early Christians being reviled for their faith. But let me just ask you, have you been reviled for your faith in Christ? Has anybody ever spoken badly of you because you believe in Jesus? Have there been times that you have been ridiculed? Maybe people have looked down upon you. Maybe you've been ridiculed behind your back. Maybe others have just thought you to be crazy and just kind of rolled their eyes. These are all part and ways of being reviled for Christ. And I just say this, if you're ever vocal about your faith, you will be reviled. And if you're ever vocal about your faith, And then you're reviled. Realize that at that moment you are blessed. God's divine favor is upon you. Though someone may be speaking against you at that moment, God is speaking for you. And He is blessing you. Right? Look what verse 14 says. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Here again, Jesus' words, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of Me. You are blessed when people 
speak falsely against you for Christ. And last week we saw the blessing that would come upon us in verse 13. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So here in the future, at the revelation of His glory, you will rejoice with exultation. The, the, the blessing there is future. But the blessing here in verse 14 is more of a present thought. You're being reviled for the name of Christ. You're blessed today. It's difficult to grasp. You've embraced Christ. You've set your heart about serving Him. And rather than receiving and being welcomed by others, you're cursed. And Peter says you're blessed. How can that be? Because being reviled hurts. Hurtful words seek deep into the soul. Hurtful words stir up anger and bitterness. Hurtful words are hard to forget. How many of you, as you think right now, can remember some hurtful words spoken against you? How many of you can? I know that I can relive them and relive them and relive them and relive them and relive them. That's why we need to be encouraged. So much so. Because the hurtful words like stay on forever. You can't get them out like a bad stain. You can't get them out of your mind. They're right there. But yet, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. You say, why? Well, verse 14 answers why. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you at that moment. When you're being reviled, God is working in your life. He's sustaining you. He's supporting you. He's strengthening you. In other passages of Scripture, we see that the Holy Spirit is our helper. He is our comforter. He encourages. He counsels. And when you, when, when do you need counseling and encouragement and comforting? comforting? Isn't it in times of difficulty and hardship? And at precisely times of difficulty and hardship, that's the time when the Holy Spirit comes and especially helps us. The Spirit of glory and God rests upon us. He, he comes upon us and counsels us and encourages us and strengthens us in those times. And the presence of God in our life then is a blessing. You're not alone in those times. When Paul prayed for his thorn in the flesh to leave him, God said no. Three times he said no. And they said, my grace is sufficient for you. See, when you're weak, God is strong in your life. And when God is strong in your life, you're blessed. That's the idea here. And Richard Wormbrand then spoke here about his involvement in the underground church. And here's the blessing. He says this. He says, I can never describe the beauty of this church. Often after a secret service... Christians were caught and sent to prison. That's not just pastors. That was any of you. Caught, sent to prison. What's your response going to be? If you look warm, you'd be terrified. If you're on fire for Christ, this is how you do There, Christians wear chains with gladness with which a bride wears a precious jewel received from her beloved. The waters in prison are still. They receive His kiss and His embraces and would not change places with kings. Think about this. I have found truly joyful Christians only in three places. I have found truly joyful Christians only in the Bible, in the underground church, and in prison. You know what I'm saying? None of you are joyful Christians. None of you. That's what he's saying. But when you're vile... You're blessed, His Spirit is upon you, and then we'll be happy. That's how we ought to face our suffering. If you're suffering for Christ, you're blessed. Well, second point, verses 15 and 16. If you suffer for Christ, don't be ashamed. 
You can see it right there in verse 16. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. Now this verse here, 16, is a contrast to verse 15. Verse 15 speaks about sufferings for other reasons. Not because you're a Christian. It says, make sure that none of you suffers a murderer, a thief, or evildoer, a troublesome meddler. The idea here is if you suffer from murderer, your suffering's just. If you're executed for killing somebody, your, your suffering is just. If you suffer as a thief, you deserve to suffer. If you're imposed on a harsh fine or you spend some time in prison, you deserve to suffer. Your suffering has no merit in it. If you suffer as an evildoer, you have no one to blame but yourself. And then amazing, look at this fourth thing. If you're a troublesome meddler, you know what a troublesome meddler is, right? It's like the, like the child who's in and asking his mom questions. Mom, why? 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 Getting in there, what you doing? What you doing? What you doing? Or kids, you're looking over your shoulder. Oftentimes what happens? They just get away! Get away! And people can be troublesome meddlers in the life of the church as well. You're just in people's lives unnecessarily. You're just a bother and a pain in the neck. Get away! And if you're suffering as a troublesome meddler, it's not good. But then he says, if you suffer as a Christian, you'll be blessed. Now we hear this word, Christian. To us, we hear it differently than Peter's readers would have heard it. The word describes those who follow Christ. Christians is a universally accepted name today for followers of Jesus. It's a very honorable name, very accepted name. But back in the days of Peter, it wasn't an honorable name. It was a derogatory word. You're suffering as a Christian. It's used only three times in all the Bible and every time it's used from unbelievers talking about Christians. Like those people over there, those, those Christ ones. I think that's the sense here that someone is calling you a, a Christian. It's interesting when the people first began following Jesus, they weren't called Christians. In the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down, they were just called believers. Those who had believed. And uh, shortly after that, they embraced their official title. Early, church, early Christians were called disciples. If you look through the book of Acts, early chapter of Acts, you'll find the disciples. The disciples increased in numbers. The disciples were here. The disciples were here. The followers and learners of Christ. And it was probably only five, ten years later that the term Christian was first used. Acts 11, verse 26 says, For an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, probably by the pagans. They were called. They didn't call themselves that. They were called by others. A derogatory name. I think it's like a a racial slur. I'm not going to use any today, but you can think about racial slur. Oh, there's a Christians. You think of some minority and how people speak of minorities badly. That's what this was like. Derogatory, deprecating tone. The other other time the word Christians used is found in Acts 26-28 when Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time you'll persuade me to be a Christian? What are you thinking, Paul? Are you kidding me to follow Christ? I don't think so. I'm not going to become one of those people. And here in First Peter, when suffering comes as a Christian, it's others who are using this word. A modern day equivalent, I'm trying to think, I think it would be Jesus freak. Do we call ourselves Jesus freaks here? I don't think so. We, we would embrace the term like the early church embraced Christians, but Jesus freaks, I think, is what 
I've been accused of being before. You're a Jesus freak. But you know what? That's exactly what Christian is and means. I mean, you think about Christian, a follower of Christ. And you ought not to be ashamed if someone's calling you a Jesus freak. Though it might go against our grain, when someone calls us a Jesus freak, we've got to realize, you know what? They got me right. They're interpreting me right. I'm all about Jesus. That's who I am. You've got it right. And in that, I can rejoice. So don't be ashamed at those things. I mean, I think about my life is about Jesus, right? He died for me. And, and I have died to my sin and I'm, I'm living for Him and I want to serve Him. There's nothing more that I want than to be with Him forever in glory. I want the world to know about Him. That's why I'm talking about Him. You call me a Jesus freak? Right on! You got it right. 1 Peter chapter 1, 8-9 shows how Jesus freakish they were. Though you've not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining us the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Joy inexpressible, full of glory in this unseen Jesus we've never seen, never touched, but we believe in Him. And you may be ridiculed by, for following a dead man. You may be ridiculed by following something you cannot prove. You may be ridiculed for being irrational or, or being stuffy and old-fashioned. You may be slandered unfairly. But if they interpret your life correctly, don't be ashamed, but rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You have no need to be ashamed of Christ. What you have is better than the world. The world doesn't know it. And I think that when we're ashamed, it shows that we don't know it. Alright, time, time for a little break here. Sing with me if you can. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer had a very shiny nose. Sing, Becca. And if you ever saw it, come on, you would even say it glows. All right, all right, let's stop there. That's the last time we're going to sing about Rudolph at Rock Valley Bible Church, all right? But, but you know the rest of the story. Rudolph was ashamed at his nose, right? He had this shiny thing and in some cartoon thing that I remember, claymation deal, I remember you guys probably saw it. I saw it a dozen times growing up, right? He tries to stuck it up and cover it with a mud. You remember that? Because he was so ashamed of it. And then he sneezed one time. And oh, they laughed at him. Wouldn't let him play in any of their games. And he was, you know, off. He didn't realize, though, what his nose was going to do. His nose was going to save Christmas. And after Christmas, Rudolph realized how great his shiny nose was. And was he ever ashamed at his shiny nose again? Never. Let it shine forth. And I would say that us, if we would come to realize and truly embrace the saving power of Christ in our lives, we'd never be ashamed at taking on His name. Yet because He's invisible and because we've never seen Him, there can easily be a sense of shame in His name. When Paul wrote to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the Gospel, it's because he knew it's easy to be ashamed of the Gospel. It's easy to be ashamed of Christ. Peter knew how easy it was to be ashamed of Christ. He denied Him three times. Timothy himself, Paul's protege, his his most trained, most faithful follower of Christ. You can read about his faithfulness in 2 
in Philippians chapter 2. Like, everyone deserted me except Timothy. Timothy's been the guy who's been right there. And yet, Timothy struggled with timidity. And Paul had to remind him, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling. You see there the, the shame and the suffering. Don't be ashamed, but rather join me in the suffering because when you're not ashamed but bold, the suffering will come. And if you're not suffering, maybe it's because you're not bold enough. And Timothy wasn't being bold enough. He was timid. And Paul said, don't be timid. Be bold. Don't be ashamed. And I just say, if we knew how powerful Christ is to save, we'd never be ashamed. That's why when Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, he finished it by saying, because it, the Gospel, is the power of God. If we understand the power of God in the Gospel in Christ, then we won't be ashamed. You know, bold for Christ, convince yourself, embrace, pray, seek not to be ashamed of Christ. You know, it's important that we're not ashamed of Christ. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of Him when He comes in the glory of His Father with His holy angels. If we're ashamed of Christ, Christ will be ashamed of us. So when someone says, are you a Christian? Someone gives you an opportunity to speak and you're quiet. Think about standing before the throne of God someday. And God accusing you and Jesus Himself being silent like you're silent. We have need not to be ashamed. The third point comes in verse 16 by way of contrast with my second point. If you suffer for Christ, glorify God. If anyone suffers as a Christian, he's not to be ashamed, but by contrast, he is to glorify God in this name. I don't think that Peter put these two points of counsel together by accident. I think that you glorify God in your sufferings as a Christian when you're not ashamed of your sufferings of Christ. And as you're not ashamed of your sufferings in Christ, that is the very means by which you give great glory to God. The apostles gave glory to God when they went away from the council rejoicing at their flogging. They'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. They rejoiced because they were considered worthy to suffer shame for God's name. They weren't ashamed and not being ashamed, they gave great glory to God. Stephen gave much glory to God when he was stoned with an attitude of forgiveness upon his lips. As he was dying, almost the last thing he said was, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. That was giving glory to God. Paul and Silas gave glory to God while suffering for Christ in the prison. In Philippi, when they're praying and singing hymns of praise to Him. In their suffering, they weren't ashamed, but rather they were glorifying God. Paul's words to the Philippians gave much glory to God when he said, I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I'm not going to be put to shame in anything, but God is going to be exalted and glorified. Whether I die or whether I live, I'm going to glorify Him. I'm not ashamed of His name. And I just say this, you glorify God when your sufferings of Christ don't deter you from worshiping Him. You glorify God in your sufferings when you continue to rejoice in the very things that brought the sufferings in the first place. See, a God who can whose worship can be deterred by mere physical sufferings, shows that he's not worthy to be worshipped. 
but the God who, who, who continues to be worshipped even amidst great sufferings shows that God is worthy to be worshipped in many, many different ways. Job says, though He slay me, yet will I praise Him. And that gives God great, great glory. Most often, the reverse happens, right? We shy away from pain. We put our hand on a hot burner and we pull our hand away. We, we walk outside the blazing sun. We, we shade our eyes, right? Because it hurts. But when difficulties come because of our faith in Christ, we can often shy away. But God is glorified. We continue in the same path. And continue to see the suffering come upon us. It puts God on display as being more important than our own personal comfort. During the days of Daniel, Darius made a, a decree. Any man who makes a petition to any god besides this king is to be cast in the lion's den. You remember what Daniel did, right? He knew the decree. He entered his home, opened his window toward Jerusalem. He continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. When faced between a decision of being obedient to God and shaming or succumbing to the laws of the land or people or being silent of God, the choice to be obedient as Daniel did brings God much glory. Let me tell you the story about ways in which God is greatly glorified. Richard Wormbrand said, Is this the one I am? Yep, this is the one I am. It was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners as it is in captive nations today. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this would receive a severe beating. So a number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted their terms. It was a deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching and they were happy beating us, so everyone was happy. The following scene happened more times than I can remember. Alright? More times than I can remember. How many times has it happened? Maybe three times? Maybe ten? Fifty times? Who knows how many times it is. Many, many times after 14 years in prison. So this happened. A brother was preaching to the other prisoners when the guard suddenly burst in, surprising him halfway through a phrase. They hauled him down the corridor to their beating room. After what seemed like an endless beating, they brought him back and threw him bloody and bruised on the prison floor. Slowly, he picked up his battered body, painfully straightened his clothing and said, Now, brethren, where did I leave off when I was interrupted? He continues gospel message and he says, I have seen beautiful things. You see where the glory of that comes? says, God is more glorious. My preaching is more important than just a, a few bruises and scrapes and blood. When God is treasured beyond our earthly comfort, He is greatly glorified. Let's go to my fourth point this morning. If you suffer for Christ, you're blessed. Don't be ashamed. Glorify God. And here it is. See God's plan. Verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? These two verses say the exact same thing. Verse 17 is Peter's words. Verse 18 is Solomon's words from Proverbs 11, verse 31. 
The message in both these verses is the same. Difficulties come upon the followers of Christ in this life. But the difficulties that we face in this life are nothing compared with the difficulties that the Gentiles and pagans who reject Christ will receive. In verse 17, it goes like this. It's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. In other words, difficult times are coming upon the church to those who obey the Gospel of God. But if difficulty comes upon those seeking to follow after God, what will become of those who are outside the church? That's what verse 17 says. Verse 18 goes like this. If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, and it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, because difficult times come upon those who follow God. And if it is that the righteous are facing difficulty in this life, what will become of those who have no regard for God in this life, in the life to come? The answer to both questions is both the same. Terrible judgment and condemnation are going to come upon those who are outside the church, who are outside the scope of the professing community, who have no faith in Christ, who are not a part of the household of God, who do not obey the Gospel of God, who are not walking righteously, who are godless and sinners. See, the sufferings of Christ that come upon the church are like only a small taste. It's only a shadow of those that will come upon the wicked. God's plan. It's suffering for those who follow Christ now, and it's greater suffering for those who refuse to follow Christ now. And for those of us who suffer for Christ now, what is it later? It is. What is it later? Glory later. Suffer now, glory later. There are those who believe the Christian life is all blessing. That. Somehow, if you're experiencing hardship and difficulty, it must be because you, you sinned in some way. <laughs> Those are, I just, they can't reconcile that with 1 Peter. To some extent, it's true. Hebrews 12 says that God deals with us as with sons. And what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? We discipline our sons. We discipline our children when they're going out of the way. Right? We discipline to bring them back in the way. That is true. But that's not always why... Suffering comes. It may be because God is trying to purify the church. In other words, get the half-hearted out of the church. That's what it might be. Last week I mentioned the parable of the sower. Three out of the four seeds that were sown were bad soils. One was hard, didn't even reflect. But two of the soils received the Word. One of them, when sufferings and afflictions and persecutions arise, they fall away. That's God here. Refining the church. Bringing difficulty upon the household of God. Judging it. Discerning it. Seeing the, seeing the non-believers fall away. When the worry of the world and deceitfulness of wealth comes upon the thorny soil, it too will fall away. They're more in love with the world than they are with Jesus. It's only a seed upon the good soil that will endure through the difficulty. And that's the path that God takes us down when we embrace Christ. He brings us down the path of sufferings and afflictions to test us and try us. Right? Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal which comes upon you for your testing. Right? It's, it's refining you. It's purifying the church. So if you suffer for Christ, realize that it is God's plan. See and know what's happening 
He's purging the church. He's purging. He says, are you true or not? It's those who endure to the end who will be saved. It's those who endure through their difficulty that they are saved, right? It's with difficulty, verse 18 says, that the righteous are saved. God brings us through difficulty to test us and try us and show that we are pure. It's what God does with the church. He brings those things upon us to purify us. All right. It's a greatly illustrated in this time. Uh, this Richard Wormbrand is talking about when uh, the Russians occupied Romania. So a foreign army was in occupying Romania. He said, two armed Russian soldiers entered a church with their guns in their hands. Imagine some soldiers coming in, guns in their hands, stopping the service, and then saying this, we don't believe in your faith and those who abandon it immediately, those who do not abandon it immediately will be shot at once. Those who abandon your faith move to the right. These are in here. You say, you vote with your feet. You move over here if you want to abandon the faith. If you want to die, you go over here. That's where we're going to shoot you, over here. Where are you going to go? Some move to the right who are then ordered to leave the church and go home. And they fled for their lives. When the Russians were alone with the remaining Christians along the wall, they embraced them and confessed, we too are Christians, but we wish to have fellowship only with those who consider the truth worth dying for. That's what God does with difficulties. That's how the righteous are saved. Because judgment comes upon the church to purify us and realize that when suffering comes, it's God's plan for us to test us and purify us so that we move to the left, not to the right. Well, my final point comes here in verse 19. If you suffer for Christ, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. And again, we see in these words, Peter is encouraging his readers to continue along the obedient path. He says, do what's right. Do what's right. Even though you may be slandered for it. Chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent so that with the thing in which you're slandered as evildoers, people someday may glorify God. Chapter 2, verse 11. I urge you as aliens and strangers, abstain from fleshly lusts and wage war against the soul, but do right, not do wrong. Chapter 2, verse 13. Do right in submitting yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Do what's right. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Doing what's right. Wives, be submissive to your husbands even if they're disobedient because you need to do what's right. Be harmonious, brotherly, sympathetic, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but, but give a blessing instead. Do what is right. Verse 14, chapter 3, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed. Right? Do righteousness. You still will be blessed. You need to continue to do what is right. See, suffering is no excuse for sin. Though you're suffering, it gives you no permission at all to do what's wrong. You need to do what's right. Now, the one motivating factor that that Peter gives us here is that your suffering comes from the hand of a sovereign God. 
You need to catch this. Suffering comes from the hand of a sovereign God. Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is right. You need to realize suffering that comes is according to God's will. There's some who want to deny this. They say it's never God's will that we suffer. God has only good in store for us. God has a wonderful plan for our life. I think the motive of those who speak this way are good. They're trying to protect the goodness of God. Because they say if God is responsible for the suffering that's coming upon us, the suffering is bad. Therefore, you know, because sometimes it involves sin. And God, He's not the author of sin. And I understand that. God is not the author of sin. But He does bring suffering. He brings it according to His will. And if you want to so try to protect the goodness of God that you sacrifice His greatness and being sovereign over all, you've lost your comfort in the trial. You've lost it. You've just thrown it away. If God is not sovereign over your suffering, then what's to say that your suffering might go far past what you can endure? But if God is sovereign over your suffering, He's going to press you and test you as much as He wants and desires. And when it's too much, He's going to stay His hand. The bruised reed He's not going to break. And the smoldering flax He's not going to put out because He's in control. He'll push, but He won't push too far. Suffering is according to the will of God. And because you know that God's hand is upon you in your suffering and you know that God is, is bringing it, you, you can know that your suffering will not be in, too intense for you to bear. And you know that your suffering will not be too long for you to endure. Rather, you know that your suffering is for your ultimate good to reflect upon God. I mean, think about Wormbrand's talk about, I've only seen people happy in three places, in the Bible, the persecuted church, underground church, and in prison. It means that maybe God's hand of suffering coming upon our lives will make us eternally happy. Isn't that a good thing? It's very good. So when suffering comes, here it is, entrust your soul to a faithful Creator. Just give it to God and say, God, I don't understand it. I don't like it. But You've brought it. And I trust You. That's how we ought to endure suffering. That's what Jesus did. Chapter 2, verse 23. Look. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. Right? He kept doing good. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats. But He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. So church family, I say trust the Lord in your trials. They're coming with sovereign design for some sovereign purpose. We may not know exactly, but continue to do right. Don't sin as a result. Well, I want to read one last story from Richard Wormbrand. And I'll close. This is the story of his wife. And again, a bit longer, but we'll make it here. What happened to my wife and son? I was taken away from my wife and I did not know what had happened to her. Only after many years, I learned that she had been put in prison too. Christian women suffer much more than men in prison. Girls have been raped by brutal guards. 
The mockery, the obscenity is horrible. The women were forced to work at hard labor building a canal, filling, fulfilling the same workload as men. They shoveled earth in the winter. Prostitutes were made overseers and competed in torturing the faithful. My wife has eaten grass like cattle to stay alive. Hungry prisoners ate rats and snakes at the canal. One of the joys of the guards on Sundays was to throw women into the Danube and then fish them out again to laugh about them, to mock them about their wet bodies, and then to throw them back and fish them out again. My wife was thrown into the Danube in this manner. My son... He had one child, one son. My son was left to wander on the street when his mother and father were taken away. Mahai had been very religious from childhood and very interested in matters of faith. At the age of nine, when his parents were taken away from him, he passed through a crisis in his Christian life, which is understandable. He became bitter and questioned all of his religion. He had problems that children usually don't have to think about at his age. He had to think about earning a living at age nine. It was a crime to help families of Christian martyrs. Two ladies who helped him were arrested and beaten so badly that they were permanently crippled. A lady who risked her life and took Mahai into her house was sentenced to eight years in prison for the crime of helping families of prisoners. All of her teeth were kicked out and her bones were broken and she will never be able to work again. She too will be a cripple for life. At the age of 11... Mahai began earning his living as a regular worker. Suffering had produced a wavering in his faith, but after two years of Sabina's imprisonment, he was allowed to see her. He went to the communist prison and saw his mother behind iron bars. She was dirty, thin, with calloused hands, wearing a shabby uniform of a prisoner. He scarcely recognized her. And her first words to him were, Mahai, believe in Jesus. The guards in a savage rage, pulled her away from Mahai and took her out. It's the only message she was able to tell her son. Mahai, believe in Jesus. Mahai wept seeing her mother dragged away. But this minute was the minute of his conversion. He knew that if Christ can be loved under such circumstances, He surely is the true Savior. He said afterwards, if Christianity had no other arguments in favor than the fact that my mother believes in it, it's enough for me. And that was the day he fully accepted Christ. Willing to suffer. I say, are you willing to suffer for Christ? And if you suffer for Christ, realize you're blessed. Don't be ashamed. Glorify God. See God's plan. Trust the Lord. And I just say, church family, trust the Lord in your suffering. So let's finish in prayer. Uh, our Father, You know that these are hard words today. And yet, the so Father has compassion on His children, so the Lord has compassion upon those who fear Him. I pray, God, You teach us to fear You. That You would help us, God, to be bold of our faith with our faith so that we would suffer for Christ and experience all these blessings and comforts. I pray, Lord, You'd help us here in America where suffering is greater than in the persecuted countries in some measure. Not physically, but we are, we are drowning in materialism. 
We're drowning in comfort. We're drowning in ease. There's no reason why we need to look to the world to come. And I pray, God, that in some cases You would strip that away from us so that we would see we need to look to the world to come. That we might cherish Christ and not be lukewarm and eventually be spit out of Your mouth. God, that we would be rock, rock solid, hot fire for Christ. I pray for the teenagers here. They might be like Alexander. Like, might be like Mahai. And uh, longing to follow in their parents' way of suffering for Christ. And so I pray for us parents here that we would follow the way of Jesus. Not easy roads, a difficult roads. One we take up a cross daily, follow Him. May He strengthen us for these things in these days. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.